Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we are rounding into Chapter 33. And just to recap Chapter 32, we last left off with our four Gunters in H's basement, figuring out what needs to be done next and how they're going to put together this armada, this militia of Gunters to attack the Sixers. While simultaneously talking about how shitty their circumstances are. Oh, of course. Right. As far as what they can do. It's almost like a pissing contest. Well, my situation's worse than yours. Oh, really? Well, I was thinking more along the lines of it's like, we've got to do this huge thing. We've got to dig our way out. Well, all we've got is a spoon because they're on the run. Again with the spoon? I know. I, I know I fall back to that reference. I know. It's, it's, it's a Shawshank Redemption thing. I can't get it out of my head. Is that where you were thinking? Is that where you were going with this? That's what I know where you are going with this. <laughs> I was gonna, wasn't going to say it by name <laughs> until you brought it up. But that's their situation. You know, they're in the shit pipe trying to crawl their way through to freedom. And not only does somebody offer to get them a shovel instead of a spoon, Og comes in offering them this big excavator to get them out of the situation. Right. So that they're not left in their shitty rigs trying to accomplish this insurmountable feat. So Og shows up in their private VR chat room, mind you. Yeah, he just kind of pops into existence. Just and boom, he's there. That's got to be really jarring, huh? Could you imagine what you would do if you just expected this chat room to be so secure and then suddenly there's this other guy that you didn't let in there just kind of just shows up? It kind of makes you question your privacy. So H actually finally decides to ask him, how did you get in here? And right. I love this line of the book where, how did you get in here? H finally asked once he managed to pick his jaw up off the floor. This is a private chat room. Yeah, it's almost like he's got the nerve to say, you know what? I like you, but get the fuck out. Like, why are you spying on us? <laughs> this is a private chat room. But this is also the Oasis. His mm -hmm. jaw could literally drop on the floor. Oh, <laughs> like a cartoon. Yeah, like a fucking cartoon. That would be awesome. That would be an interesting feature. And then he actually has to pick up his jaw. Yeah. Kind of like if you had balls of solid adamantium, it's kind of like ping, ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Like you walk around and it's actually ding-a-linging. Yeah. What is the, who, are you wearing bells? No, those are just my solid animanium balls. But yes, yeah, so Og shows up in the room. He is questioned about how this can be private. And you really do at this point need a fairly long explanation for how Og can just simply pop in. And as this chapter blossoms, sort of pop in and save the day for our heroes. The level of scrutiny and Artemis is just like, she ain't having it. She's like, you didn't answer his fucking question. What the <laughs> F are you doing here? <laughs> with all due respect. When anybody has to preface what they're going to say with all due respect, there's a really good chance there's probably not a lot of respect happening in the following words. I mean, to be fair, they have a lot of reason to be a little bit skittish 
and really want to make sure that who they're talking to is who they are talking to. So yeah, That's true. I do get the I do understand why they want to know how can you get in here. But on the flip side, it's like this is the co-creator. Well, that we know of. I mean, keep in mind this is an avatar. People know what Og looks like. Somebody could have made an avatar of Og. Who's to say that IOI didn't have some thing that they bought off of the auction site that allows them to impersonate somebody or to access a a private space? Maybe somewhere on Uncipio, there's an Og skin. You don't know. That that's just it. And I didn't really think about it till now. But how would our heroes know that this was Og? Ask for an ID. You know, and how how would they? Because this is sort of end times for them. This is the the culmination of competition. I suppose they can still get information on the people in the room, right? So they could just tap on their avatar and be like, oh, this is actually the great and powerful Og. I, I don't know. Maybe. I guess. I, I would be like Og number two or Og four. or I don't know. He's not going That's to the public it. schools. He's not Og three or pro- there, probably I, Og one, actually. I think that it is appropriate that with Og popping in, that there's at least a moment of how the fuck did you do that? Yeah. Because I think the readers. As a reader, I would be like, hold the phone now. So there has to be some degree of explanation. How does Og approach this? Basically, when we created the Oasis, we gave ourselves godlike powers, plain and simple. And that makes sense. It's like if I was creating this brand new world, I'd be like, yeah, I want to be motherfucking god of this place. Super user access. Super user access. And that makes sense. To an extent, I guess that would be a good way to kind of sell that off. But I mean, it's it's. let's see, how does he quote it out here? They turn to face the four of us. No one else has the ability to eavesdrop on you, especially not the Sixers. Oasis chatroom encryption protocols are rock solid, I assure you. He chuckled lightly. My presence here notwithstanding. That <laughs> So is that to say that the private chat rooms, even if you were using an internet connection that was owned by an IOI subsidiary, that you would still be safe? That's what it sounds like. I don't know. That they have Uh, different uh, encryptions for the private chat rooms. Maybe. The way I want to turn this around is that imagine if, you know, you use Google, you use Gmail, let's say, and then Google sends you an email or Google calls you and says, hey, I want to help you out. By the way, I've been reading all your emails. That is not a shock right now. Well, no, it's not, but it's it's kind of feels like a risk, doesn't it? Like if if you expect your shit to be private, you want it private from the company that you're working with. You don't even want them to be able to access it because if they can't access it, there's no back door. This is the problem that Apple ran into. In 2016, it was Apple versus the FBI. There was a, a little bit of a thing there where a couple of terrorists went in and shot up their workplace. Oh, San Bernardino. San Bernardino. And they got a hold of their iPhones and the FBI came back and said, we want to know what they were doing on their phones. And Apple was like, well, we can't tell you that. And the FBI's demand was that they create a backdoor, that they provide that method to them that they could use at any time at the FBI. Thus, the FBI wouldn't be allowed, wouldn't be going to Apple to say, could you please? They just use it anytime. They were literally asking for them to create a package that is a backdoor method of some sort, and then wrap it up with a bow and give it off to the FBI. And Apple said, we don't do that. We don't know that the privacy is so, so much so that we can't do it. There is no backdoor. That's the point of privacy. Wink, wink, nod, nod, FBI, privacy. (laughs) 
Yeah, <laughs> and that's constantly the struggle between our government versus uh, businesses and the privacy and the interests of the individuals that use those businesses. You know, it, it's a hindrance to the FBI, and I get that, but there is a balance, and that is that the government can't come in and infringe on our privacy, and that businesses that are trying to gain your trust, we're giving our credit cards to Apple, we're giving personal information, we're using apps that have all kinds of info, that geolocation, there's a lot of sensitive information that we wrap into our usage of our personal devices on a daily basis. We don't want that trust to be violated just because the government says, you know, I just don't want you to give us a random 100,000 people or worse, somebody in power who's like, I don't like dissenters. I want to call everyone who is dissenting against me a terrorist. Or I want to go after them legally because they're lying about me, even if you're not. Anyone could call you a liar, even if you're speaking the truth. And then to demand from businesses, you've got to give me private information about everyone who's dissenting against me. That is a problem. That is a real problem that people in China and North Korea and Russia are dealing with on a daily basis. So it's a real concern when a company comes and says, you thought this was private. Well, not really, but it's just me. Trust me. <laughs> for the book, that's neat. But in the real world, that for me is a real issue. So who do you think Artemis is more pissed at, Parzival mm -hmm. or Og? At this point, I'd say Og because he's probably then got access to those pictures that she took of herself when she was really tipsy and, uh, and feeling a little risque. Uh, and then she thought she deleted those pictures, but they weren't deleted. Because nothing on the internet is ever deleted. No. So prob probably Og. I'm just kidding. Fuck if I know. But she gets over it real fast. <laughs> she if somebody's offering to extract you from a war zone, so to speak, you kind of let things go pretty quickly. Yeah. Daddy Ogbucks uh, <laughs> is coming in to rescue them. He's going to offer them a means to attain exactly what they've been after for the past 10 years. So, you know, in that moment, it's kind of like, do you have an answer for this? Yeah, I'm God when it comes to the Oasis. Didn't you know? Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough for me. Who's with them? <laughs> That's an even stronger case for making sure that IOI does not inherit the Oasis. Because then, pff, fuck privacy. That's true. Fuck privacy. But if a company is not willing to respect the privacy of the people that trust them, and they're not willing to fight for your privacy, and try to ensure it. Google struggles with this because people hack the hell out of Google to try to get at uh, accounts and a number of other angles that they can. It's, it's hard. It's hard. Working in IT, it's difficult. But you want the businesses that you trust to be on your side or to fight for you. The minute that they break that trust for their own gain and interests, you wonder what else they're willing to do for their own gain and interests. But I imagine in a moment like this, we can set that aside. One, one thing I'd, I'd like to, to note, and we'll move beyond it, is what if, with this power, what if the Oasis as a corporation is worse than IOI? Well, and that's one of those things that we've kind of come back to every now and then right? in the course of discussing the book. Did the Oasis help create the dystopian society that they live in? Right. Because people were so focused on what was going on in the Oasis, they forgot about what was going on in real life. At one point in the book, the fares for teleportation increase. And it's like, this is a multi-billion dollar company, and they're raising the prices of something that doesn't cost them anything. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, okay, fine. And in my opinion is that I would rather pay, I, I would rather there be a clear means for understanding how a company makes their money than everything be free. Sure. And the reason, the reason why I say that is because if you know how they make their money, then there is at least a little bit of trust through rationality or reason, which is that if you don't know how they're making their money, then the only thing you have left to assume is that they're making their money off of your information. And that's where my concern would be is that if they have access to these private rooms and they're able to record all private rooms at all times, well, those rooms are private. What information could you know about everyone, not just an audio but in what you do in those rooms that you could lean against other people that you could leverage as or use for blackmail. Yeah. You know, you're collecting information. What could you sell to someone else who could use that information against someone else? And and then, then you're talking about the leverage of power. That's a real concern. You know, if, if your privacy isn't private, then then somebody could find something they could use to leverage against you. It might not be bad. It's just that other people with enough information can create a story and publish that story, not literally, but they can they can present that story about you that is not accurate contextually, but that anyone else wouldn't know. There's got to be a lot of discrimination with regards to who you would trust with that information. Some people might say, oh, I don't want Google to know everything about my email and what I talk about, but they'd be fine with Apple. Knowing, oh, well, I trust Apple. They're not going to do anything. Well, they're probably both equally as evil in that regard. Right. If two different entities are doing the exact same thing, one entity is evil and the other is, that's okay. I don't care. It's them. I trust them. They have no reason to right. trust them, but they've made a decision that that entity is trustworthy. So it's at this point where Parsval has the realization that it was Og that had to have knocked over the stack of comic books back in chapter 15. Mm, yes. And H was like, it's a glitch, man. It's a glitch. Yeah. Yeah. And a weird thing to have, it was a foretelling. It was a good hint that something was awry and that the author adequately focused on an event that would otherwise be background. Like it shouldn't even be mentioned. But there was a good half a page talked about, hey, that shit fell and then somebody noticed and that's ah, just a glitch or something, right? Yeah. You had to know that it was going to come back at some point. And if it didn't, it would have been a Chekhov's gun. Yes, absolutely correct. So I am very glad that they wrapped back around to this because I think it, even if we, had I gotten to the end of the book and then reread it a dozen times that I have, I would have gotten to that point and go, why the hell are you wasting my time on this stupid piece of shit? Yeah. You know, this this event that had absolutely no meaning whatsoever for the rest of the book. But when I did read that part, I was like, that's suspicious. And they focused on just enough attention to provoke suspicion. And at this point, they have fulfilled that suspicion. And uh, I loved that. You know, ah, there was a good reason for filling half a page worth of words about this event. And then I love this because ah, I was like, yep, it was me. I can be pretty clumsy at times. I love that. I like how he can be <laughs> invisible, but but not unsubstantial. Well, well, but like, so what was it? What was he gonna do? Take something off of the shelf and start reading it, and then they're like, "Why is that comic book reading itself?" Well, or more importantly, how is it that he's invisible but not able to not interact with shit? Like somebody could have bumped into him, and he'd have to like, "Whoa, you know what I mean?" He's just scoot around <laughs> the bodies and shit, right? Why would <laughs> I feel like I just walked into a fat man? 
it could have got real pervy at that point. That's that is the part that concerns me about this. <laughs> People do private things in their private rooms. You know, is Artemis pissed more pissed off at Og or or Wade? Og, because Og might have been watching in on our private room. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, God. You know, I still see Simon Pegg now. Like, I, I had an initial vision of the sort of cheruby, you know, bushy, mustache, beardy looking guy. But I, now, all I, all I hear when I read this is Simon Pegg. Maybe a chubbier Simon Pegg, possibly, but it's Simon Pegg. My initial vision for Og being portrayed either in the movie or at least in my head mm-hmm. was Jeff Bridges. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's wow. I wish you'd mentioned that before. I I might have actually I can like like the more recent Jeff Bridges, right? Like older, kind of gray, very grandfathery, slap on a few extra pounds. I think yeah. that was what I, get, I yeah. pictured and I I'm thinking you're thinking like the most recent Tron Jeff Bridges. I think I was thinking more Iron Man Jeff Bridges. I could see that, I, but that's kind of but he's bald in that. Yeah, that's what I pictured because he's he's got to be old. He's got to have lost a little bit of hair. He look up look up Jeff Bridges. Uh, did you did you see Tron the second one? I did see the second Tron. Oh yeah, I mean that could be that could be it too. That's at least what I was thinking. You know, sort of the technology Jeff Bridges, grandfathery technology Jeff Bridges. I could see that. As I was reading through this, though, I could definitely I I was just imagining the the Og from the movie, which I, I like Simon Pegg, but that was not what I pictured. But okay, that's just that's me. It's not how I originally pictured either, and I think my picturing was more along the lines of uh, who was Wozniak. I was thinking more uh, along the lines of Wozniak. Yeah, and I think that's part of what informed my vision of Jeff Bridges because I imagined this kind of big beard and bellowy voice. Little chubby, sort of like a technology Santa. Yeah. Okay. Yes, technology Santa. (laughs) (laughs) Kids, I've been watching you. I'd had to determine whether or not you were naughty or nice. (laughs) I'm so clumsy. Oh lord. (laughs) Oh, oh, oh. come into my Habershaw rooms. (laughs) Anyhow, all right, back to the book. Yeah, before this goes way out of control. So continue on with the story, Og and his clumsiness. They ask him point blank, tell us why you've been eavesdropping on us. And he says, I want to help you. And it sounds like you guys need some help. And uh, yeah, they kind of do. Well, and more importantly, this is where Halley had charged him with keeping the contest fair. Not cheating, not giving anyone per se an advantage, but keeping it fair. And I think that's important. Well, yeah, and Og certainly does because he mentions the fact that he's not going to give away any clues or information a couple times this chapter. Well, yeah, yeah. And I don't know that he necessarily knows. Like if you've only known, if you've not talked to the person who put together the competition, let alone talked to them in 10 years, and then you you come back to them while they're on their deathbed and he says, look, there's going to be this competition. I need you to just help me to make sure that it's fair. Yeah, and by the way, I don't have time to write these protections into my will. I've already recorded the video, so I just need you to, you know, oversee things a little bit. Sorry about yeah. that. And I get it. You you can't tell how people are going to abuse the system. You can't tell how they're going to take something and work it in a way that is just unforeseeable. That you can't write in a means to 
control this sort of situation. Like you can't write into the Oasis, hey, could you make sure this company doesn't try to murder the players? There's, there's no way to do that. You could have maybe written it into the rules that if you are discovered to have tried to kill anyone, anyone over the competition, you're disqualified. Let's just say you're disqualified. But it has to be proven. You're at minimum disqualified. Maybe you'll be arrested. Right. So they've just been found out. So it would be a situation possibly where the game would be over before anyone would be prosecuted. Right. Because you just turned the evidence over to the news. And let's, you know, law enforcement in a post-apocalyptic world is kind of sketchy. If it exists at all. Well, it exists. It sounds like it exists in regards to the localized cities, but in between cities, not so much. Because remember, they had the buses and the buses were all armored and they'd have people that try to like attack and take over and rob the people or whatever. There's probably better intra-Oasis policing than there is outside of the Oasis. Probably so. I could see that. So... You know, how can you write that in? You know, how could you write that into the rules? How would you know? Og says that Halliday was worried there might still be bugs in the gates or complications might arise and things that would prevent the contest from proceeding as he had planned. And Shoto's like, you mean like the Sixers? And Og's like, yeah, exactly. The Sixers. Mm -hmm. So if Halliday was expecting that kind of thing to have happened or at least thought the possibility was there, he could have written protections into the contest. He could have. And you can't anticipate everything. No, you can't anticipate everything. But if you're worried about a huge corporation abusing the contest, you could write a few protections in there. And to be fair, he did kind of skim through all the legalese in the invitation. So there may have been some in there. We don't know. Well, my thinking is that even if there were some in there, you would imagine a corporation, any corporation, but let's just say IOI. IOI, Comcast, one of those two. (laughs) Apple, anyone would have gone through that to look for every single fucking loophole that they could take advantage of. So, you know, I imagine we could assume at this point, you know, above and beyond what the book presents, that a corporation like that would have been looking for loopholes to exploit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think they've even mentioned in the book that they were basically trying to find any loophole possible. Right. Which is why they can switch people out. Like they've been admittedly breaking the rules, but it's one of those things. It's like if you can't prove it and we're not getting caught, then you can't say we broke the rules. And therein lies the problem. If you don't find out that they broke the rules in time to prevent them from winning the game, then you've lost. You know, you're too late. With that, Og kind of takes it upon himself. He's like, I want to kind of give you a hand here or or at least maybe level the playing field. I think that's what we're talking yeah. about. I don't think this is it is cheating for him to cuz I have to think when I was reading this part I'm like, well, I agree. IOI sucks, but is this possibly ducking down to IOI's level? And I don't think the answer is no because Og could choose anybody he wants to come over and visit his home at any time for any reason and to use his chairs to go into the Oasis at any time for any reason, if he chose to. I would say it does not break one of the few rules we do know about that former GSS or current GSS employees are not able to partake in the contest because it's still not Og partaking in the contest. He's just giving them, like you said, the level playing field. And Mm -hmm. I mean, could he have done it a different way? Like say, oh, well, the nearest secure (laughs) Oasis parlor 
is, you know, a few towns away. I'm going to have a limo pick you yeah, up I'm and take sticky. you there. And, you know, we'll even clean it up for you. We'll, we'll get the Lysol and, all, and a bunch of Purell and clean the room. Yeah, I don't, I don't see him inviting them over as any different. I, I think the concern there, of course, is in doing so, is he providing them any information, like kind of like insider trading information, if you will, uh, or any sort of insight into the game? And he's already said, I'm not going to give you any hints, not like you need them. Yeah. But I will give you access to my rigs because why the hell not? Because, you know, IOI has put them in a position where they can't adequately play. See, I think that in chapter three of the next book, it's going to be like there's going to be a suit levied by IOI saying, well, they were at Og's house. So. Og must have been helping them, mm-hmm. and therefore we think that they are disqualified from the contest. What so you think the next book is going to be like? Um, a lo- <laughs> it's going to be like Law and Order. <laughs> it's going to be a version of Law and Order. Dun dun. No, <laughs> I don't think that would sustain a book, and frankly, it wouldn't be nearly as fun <laughs> as would. But it, it could could be kind of. I mean, I guess you could. It, people like Law and Order shit. You just have to, you know, you'd be digging into. Uh, into into police and detective stories from the eighties, right? Mm. You know, could you imagine courtrooms have... in the Oasis? That'd be kind of neat. Uh courtrooms in the Oasis. Well, you could make it pretty grand. You could, I suppose, you could actually create a simulation of what you think happened, and people could be there. Oh, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. You could like reproduce the crime and potentially even view the event. Yeah. Like you were there. The way the state tells it and then the way the defense tells it. Dude, that'd make that special victims unit shit really twisted. That would make that shit unwatchable. Oh, my God. (laughs) It totally would. But that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. Like, uh, Law and Order in VR would be uh, pretty spectacular because you could literally see, like, the buildings, the angle that a person could shoot from, the splatter patterns. Oh, that, you know. That, you can kind of show people this is why this works or this is why it doesn't work. Right, 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 right. Be pretty wild. Yeah. That's fucking awesome. That's a great point. Holy shit. But it's also easy to manipulate. Um it's kind of like yeah. how you show two charts that show the exact same data but you can have them make the viewer reach two different conclusions. Sure, but I think you can do that with a lack of information too. I think a lot of court stuff is confidence and it's a way of twisting evidence. I once sat in on a, I was a jury for a case where somebody had pointed a gun at somebody else. That, by the way, is illegal to do. You can't, like, settle an argument by pulling out your gun and saying, really? (laughs) It's assault. Yeah, it is. It's assault. It's a lower level of assault. You're absolutely correct. And what they did, particularly in this, is that the lawyer came up and brought several gauges of, of rounds and then put it before the police officer and said, you know, here's this. What What is this really big bullet, right? This, here's a shotgun shell. Here's this. And they went all the way down to a 22. And the argument here was the gun that the guy pulled to point at this guy shot 22. So it was a competition pistol. It's like a cap gun. <laughs> it was, that's kind of like he was arguing. And, and to the, the point of the police officer, he says that 22 is still moving at a considerable speed and can kill someone. Oh. <laughs> that went but differently than so, I had planned. 
but less so than a shotgun. Would you agree? <laughs> what? Anyhow, I, I think that in, in a situation where you have VR that's mimicking reality fairly accurately, where you could show that from this angle, this person is here, this is the pattern that would have been produced if if they were where they said they were, but it wasn't. Um, I think it's just a, a it would be a better way to present information rather than the cards that they end up putting up in front of the jury and the jury having to use their imagination based on the charisma of the lawyer trying to pitch their story. Does that make sense? I hear you. All right. So Aug offers them a solution to their current dilemma that has been pushed down on them by IOI in an effort to level the playing field. But I think we can agree that this is not cheating. This is him holding to Jim Halliday's request for Aug to keep things fair. And that is for them to come to his house and use his rigs. Not a bad offer. Well, yeah. Well, that and they're protected. Yeah, because they should be pretty safe there. Well, and I have to imagine, being the person that Aug is, just from a, a popularity status and the fact that this is a, a time of lawlessness in the outreaches beyond the cities, that Aug's going to have a certain degree of defense, right? At the very least, I'd think that he's probably got armed guards, at least enough to compete with like a drug lord. You know? I mean, it, given his popularity, given his wealth. Given where he lives, does he have an army of orcs? Well, maybe people dressed as orcs, you know, or at least really well-armed furries. Mm. I don't know. Oh, God. <laughs> what? There could be a thing. So then what is the next step in our hero's journey? Well, it's the private chartered jets. And that's pretty amazing. You know, the fact that he was able to charter three private jets for everybody was uh, a testament to his wealth. And it's like, well, he was the co-creator of the Oasis. He's got to have a shit ton of money. But for these four people to be able to fly short slash long distances, depending on who they are, I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing for them because they like that's that stuff. That's for the wealthy. Well, it's not just for the wealthy. It's it's for the uber wealthy yeah. at this point. Because there's been an energy crisis, a fuel crisis. These aren't electric jets. And to, to charter three private ones today is, is for the wealthy. It's expensive. In 10 years or 15 years, after an energy crisis, after a rarity of fuel, when you're talking about people leaving their cars on the streets because there is no gas to fuel them, they're now worthless and useless. That's like 1% wealthy. 1% of 1%. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, super wealthy. So that's a great point because I think it it kind of underlines the fact that in our day and age, yeah, that's wealthy. In that period of time, given the circumstances, that's like insanely fucking wealthy. So they're obviously very appreciative. Mm -hmm. So first he offers Shoto a lift and Shoto is like, you know, I'm in Japan. And then I was like, I know Shoto. And the thing is, every time I hear Will Wheaton say this, that's an incredibly kind offer, Mr. Morrow, Shoto said. But I live in Japan. I know, Shoto, Og said. In my mind, I'm thinking that Og is going like, Duh, Shoto, I'm not a fucking idiot. I know you're in fucking Japan. Piece of shit. <laughs> Your impression of Og in this book is way more confrontational than mine is. <laughs> Wait, I didn't read it that way. It's funny how you can read something, and to one person it might seem short, to another person, it might can seem almost rude. Like, I can totally see how you could interpret it that way. Part of it is, is that I'm listening to Will Wheaton's interpretation of it, which is kind of like, I know, Shoto. I know, Shoto, 
Yeah, that's true. Okay. Well, I didn't take it that way. At least I don't think I did. I don't think I took it that way when I actually read the words on actual paper or ebook media. It's kind of lost in translation there. But but it's a good point that he would say, look, I'm in Japan. I'm really far away. Like, how rich are you? It's kind of like, I am really far away. What are you going to do? And for him to say, I know, I know you are. I'm sending a plane to you now. And it's like, holy shit, or there's a plane waiting for you. But imagine this, a thousand miles by plane is a thousand mm-hmm. miles no matter where the fuck you are. That's true. But an international flight is different than an intercontinental flight. Fair point. Does does Shoto have a passport? I'd say that if you have a private jet, it doesn't matter. It should matter. But in some countries, it does not. I imagine in the lawlessness that is 2045, this doesn't happen that often. So if this is really for the uber-rich, the uber-rich make their own fucking rules. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I imagine it's a situation where if you can get there, you can get there. Yeah. He offers Artemis to get picked up by a limo. And with somebody holding a sign named Benatar. Mm-hmm. That, that was the name of her own private asteroid, right? Right. Well, that was the, I thought she had a planet. Planet, asteroid, whatever. Hey, now, there's a difference. Planets cost more. So I do like the, <laughs> the obvious reference to that being something that is special to her. But my issue with Benatar is if you're somebody who's being hunted, like in this case, let's, let's just say a company called IOI was, was after you, and they know everything about you. They might even say have a file on you Mm -hmm. and you know that she's somewhere in a particular area. So you send out plainclothes agents to look for her Mm -hmm. and then you got somebody looking around and someone's holding a sign that says Benatar, which is not exactly a common name. Right. Could they be suspicious that that might be somebody who's basically been arranged to pick up Artemis? Well, okay. I, I get that. Um, and let me come at you with devil's advocacy here. Please do. Which is that she's at the airport. No one knows she's there. If they were there, they know what she looks like. So it's not like they couldn't find her. So I think if IOI was already there, there would be a deeper threat within the story. I guess my follow-up question would be, would Og suggest, or is this even possible, that the guy picking her up is armed? I don't know. But uh, maybe that would be that would be an interesting direction in the story that he did not go in. But the idea being here that there is this hint on this sign that is specific to her that, first off, IOI would have to even be in the vicinity to pick up on. Second, IOI would have to be intelligent enough to pick up on. Oh, that's true. They clearly are not intelligent enough to pick up on this stuff. So but but keep in mind that all of their employees live in Ohio. She's nowhere near there. So they would have to have sent people there. It's, so it's not like they're sending their oologists. They're sending murderers. But they were watching her house. They went and sent people to go send Dido uh, on a nosedive down to the first floor. Those were people who probably did not care what his, uh, what his background was. You know, those were not the oologists. Sure. They don't, you know, their oologists aren't like holding second jobs as, as thugs and murderers for Iowa. I happen to be really smart and good at killing people, but I'm awesome at tossing people through windows. If you if you put a hit on somebody, mm. you're probably giving them a dossier that says, "Here's the important information to know about this person." I, I get you, and and that's I think that's the reason why the name on it was Benatar, because if you put her avatar name, 
That would be too obvious. That would be a little too obvious. Put her real name. Well, plus... Probably too obvious. Plus people might actually be aware of her avatar name because she is a... She was a famous Mm -hmm. avatar before she ended up on the scoreboard. But to put Benatar... That's loose enough that she could find the reference, but that others would really have to either know or put the connection together. Eh, I could see it as being safe enough. Like I feel like the story kind of addressed the fact that it was a it was a wink and a nod to, hey, this is how you'll know we're here for you. Yeah, I might be looking into it too deeply, but that's what we're here for. I, I could, I totally, totally, I could see why you would think that there could be risk. I think it's it's reasonable to say that Iowa's not at the airport, otherwise there'd be worse issues, and that you'd really, really have to know Benatar. But here's the thing. Anyone could use the name Benatar. Like, Pat Benatar amongst this crowd, amongst Gunters, could mean anything. It, it very specifically references Pat Benatar, but it doesn't necessarily connect it to her in the number of directions it would for everyone else. Sure, but... Does that, does that make sense? But in the general geography of where Artemis lives, and somebody getting yeah. a sign that says Benatar... Yeah, FIOY just happened to be at the airport, and then they saw the sign Benatar, and they knew enough about Artemis, and that's who they were there for. Somebody might walk by and go, you know, I wonder. <laughs> but it would be different if it was her avatar name or her real life well, Yeah, name. well, that would be it silly. Would, that would be stupid, yeah. So I, I, I totally think, like, they, they covered... Enough where there's a reference, and yet at the same time to keep her safe, and yet at the same time not not as much of a target. Because yeah. I agree, if it was your, like if it was our avatar name, it'd be like okay, then then people would be like, oh my god, she's gonna be here. It, fans would start hanging out, right? Yeah, I think if we were dealing with a smarter bunch of people, then it'd be there might be a, a bit more risk, but she probably is pretty safe. Yeah, but that's a good question though. Like, shouldn't that be like an obvious target? I think. Mm-hmm. But I like that. That's a good question. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to think about at this point in the book, in this latest this latest stage in the game. Yeah, but at the very least, we have figured out how to get Artemis back on your good side. Is you offer to fly her to Oregon or anywhere or anywhere <laughs> because she runs over to Og and somewhere between the time she started running and threw her arms around him in a bear hug, she forgave him for sneaking up on them and. Listening on their conversations. Just a little bit. Yeah. She yeah, got over totally. that shit quick. Real quick. Absolutely. Well, let's face it. She's out. She's alone. She's scared. She can't go home. She's got nobody she can go to. Yeah. It's, like I said, it's it's Daddy Ogbucks. Yeah. yeah. Parzival, take notes. <laughs> Send her on a trip somewhere. <laughs> Make her feel protected. Uh, I did like, you did put some notes here, a number of Pat Benatar songs that I'm not a huge Pat Benatar fan, but I know a lot of the more popular songs. But some of them, I thought, really kind of nailed down her personality. Yeah, big time. If you think you know how to love me, Heartbreaker, Hit Me With Your Best Shot, Love Is A Battlefield. I was like, oh, like each of these really kind of like underscores her personality in this book. It's a bullet list of their relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, yeah, I suppose so. So very appropriate. But I also thought, you know, just kind of having that attitude, you know, that full on come at me with everything you got, like, like you got to earn this shit, right? Uh, It's just uh, even the lyrics for some of those songs kind of nail down the personality that's been painted for this character in the book. I thought there was some some good points that you had brought up. So let's talk about H. Because H is going to pick up Parzival 
on the way to the airport. Exactly. So anyway, we've taken care of Shoto. We've taken care of Artemis. So now we get H and Parzival still wondering what the fuck they're going to do. I like how it's, I'm rich, but you guys are going to have to share a plane. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can do three jets, not four. So, you know, get a ride, guys. I'm so glad I'm not the only one that was thinking that because it's like, really? Why don't you just say, hey, H, why don't you go to the Pittsburgh airport, if there is one, and Parzival, why don't you go to the Columbus airport? That's going to take time. Like driving from, you know how long it takes to get from Pittsburgh to Columbus, Ohio? Well, it's pretty much a straight line. It's a three-hour drive. That's that's three hours that he could have been there. But I guess, you know, that's, I mean, we're kind of coming down to the point now. They could have just gone to their nearest airports and gotten the fuck out. And I might add, you know, it. Again, there is a danger to driving between cities. Yeah. That there's a real threat that somebody could come and run your shit off the road and no one's going to help you and they could just steal your shit. That's a good point because like when Parzival is taking the bus ride to Columbus, he's on a bus with armed guards. So yeah, it's armored. So if H wants to drive in a manner that's going to be safe, he might have to be limited to well-populated areas Mm-hmm. As opposed to being someplace completely remote. And we don't know what Pittsburgh to Columbus is actually like. We can perhaps deduce that because it it's East Coast and it's closer to Columbus where maybe that technology bubble kind of got out that far and that maybe there is some more development that's still decent at that point, that maybe they'd be safer there because Parzival is living basically in middle America. Right. You could understand that being a little bit more sketch. Harrier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I used to live I used to live in Ohio and I've driven to Pittsburgh, although I don't remember it taking three hours, but it <laughs> there are there are areas in Ohio that aren't sketch per se, but you look around and it's flat land and it's farmers. Yeah. And until you get to a big city, it's flat land and farmers, which, you know, is kind of not sketch, but a post-apocalyptic world, I could totally see it being kind of sketch. Like, it could be dangerous, right? Yeah, so that is that is a, an interesting thing that, that Og would be like, look, um, you're just going to have to double up and share, and by the way, be careful while you're driving. But H does make it and does end up picking up Parzival. Yeah. Break into that for us. So I guess had not there been this whole want you to meet up thing, we would not get the reveal that is coming just ahead. Right. So it does actually work as far as the storytelling goes. But H does warn Parzival, just so you know, uh, your jaw is going to drop when you see me. Right. So, of course, we all know that everybody's just a little bit different. Their avatars are, of course, a little bit different than their real life personas. And, of course, H totally deflects when Parzival suggests that, why don't you just tell me what you look like now? Yeah. That's just weird. Well, and, and the response was, look, I'm on the road. I'll be there in a little while. I'll catch you in a couple hours and, and then we'll chat. And to tell, I mean, I, I, if somebody was to warn you, look, uh, it, it's not what you think. And I look nothing like my online persona. But I could see the next question being, why don't you just tell me? Tell me what, what, you know, are you missing what, like an arm or 20 legs or, you know, what? You're a hairy, obese man named Chuck that lives in his mother's basement? Exactly. Are we drawing from reality there? What is what is the thing? 
I could totally see in the moment. You know, well, just tell me. Tell me what I'm in for. Tell yeah. me what I should be looking for here, right? That's not an unusual question. I can I absolutely see asking the question, but it's still a weird question to ask. It's a weird question to have to ask, maybe. But he, he asks the question, H deflects. He basically starts prepping for war while he's waiting for H. And he's also, while nervous about meeting H, he's even more nervous about meeting Artemis. And he wonders what she's going to be like in real life. Is the photo a fake? Does he have a chance with her? He's got a one-track mind. He's a teenager. Yeah, raging kids. hormones. Filled raging hormones. You know, I think there's more important things to be focused on in the moment, but I get it. You know, when, when your heart's kind of attached to, to somebody that's kind of long distance, and more importantly, you've never met before. I mean, we can shake our heads. We can shake our heads and go, dude, dude. This is an online thing. You're dating somebody you've never seen before. You know, we, we could all sort of shake our heads. But the fact of the matter is that it is in this world very possible, even in our current world, to get emotionally attached to someone that we interact with in as large or as little of an interaction that we might have. It could be just text typing to somebody. It could be voice chatting with someone. It could be gaming with someone. You know, I know people who, who've gotten married that they met online while gaming. They eventually met in person before they got married, right? Well, that's true. Yeah. But but their romance blossomed and bloomed and went there before. Sure. Right? That doesn't sound weird to me. No, well, not now. So I, I can see there where that kind of comes up. But, uh, you know, the other side is the fact that he was like, you know, it doesn't matter what you would look like. Uh, I would still love you. And she comes back with the, you know, if, even if I was like some fat dude with back hair named Chuck. And he's like, well, yeah, I'd still love you, but you're not, are you? <laughs> like, it, this is a point where if he was really confident in how he felt, he could sit back and go, you know what? Doesn't matter. Going in blind. I love this person. That's just the way it is. You know, maybe it's a nine-year-old. Maybe it's a cowboy in his 80s. Doesn't matter. I love this person. I love this person for what I know, who I know, as much as I know right now. I think the fear could be that you want it to work out in, a, in the right way. But for the most part, if you really felt that, if anybody really had that conviction, it doesn't matter, then it, it wouldn't matter here. So I think this is kind of that that break in the story where it's like he was showing confidence about being, you know, in love with this person who's saying, look, you only love my avatar and the person speaking through it, him going, no, that's not true to it actually being the case because he's really concerned here. If he didn't care, then there'd be nothing to write about here. But he does. He's, you know, worried. He's concerned. And that he'll be disappointed. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so Parzival's preparing for battle, and word has gotten out about their plan. Mm -hmm. Didn't take long. They're, the news is showing video of Dido's death, and you got these clever headlines. Gunther's declare all-out war on the Sixers. Top Gunther's accuse Iowa of kidnapping and murder. Is the hunt for Halliday's egg finally over? Gunters declare all-out war on the Sixers. Yeah. News at seven. It, <laughs> this, reminds, this reminds me of like some, some 20s news broadcast. You know, some dude screaming out like newspaper headlines. Read all about it. Top Gunter accused of kidnapping and murder. And right after that, what to do if your cat gets stuck in a tree? You know, something <laughs> stupid. Right. Right. So uh, I love how he just ponders what Sorrento must have done when he figured out how all that data was taken out of IOI and realizing that moment, like, oh my God, he was just a few floors beneath me. 
I like thinking about other people being pissed off about something that I did. So this really like hit a nice soft spot with me. This is the part where I wish that the format of this book could have spoken from different perspectives. Uh. Like this book is purely from Wade's sort of take on it, right? And which is kind of cool because we could do the same book five different ways. And I would love to read Sorrento's story. Yeah, so you're still stuck on the whole have George R.R. R. Martin write the book thing. Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, like Andy Weir, when he wrote The Martian, uh, for a good portion of the book, it was written like diary entries. But then you reach that point where it flips to NASA and the people working at NASA. And you reach that point and you go, oh, God, what happened? Because all of this was like diary entries. And then the diary entries stop. And now we're flipping to NASA and NASA thinking he's dead. And NASA, you know, what? now you're with the characters in NASA or it bounces to the people aboard the big ass spaceship that they came to Mars in. And so it kind of bounces around perspective wise. And it's something that Andy Weir decided to do at a certain point in the book. And that's because he wasn't really constrained by the format of telling it from the perspective of one character. Whereas in this book, we are. So this is one of those scenes where I would love to have bounced to Sorrento and then Sorrento is, you know, what happened? Or, or somebody goes to his pod and opens it and is like, oh, this guy's not here. And then it starts to like make its way up the chain and then reaches Sorrento. And then they start going through the video feeds using facial recognition to track him down. You could picture him like at a conference table with all this paper on it. And then he throws it all off to the floor and says, how the fuck? Yeah, exactly. Right, right. You want that drama. And you want to know, I want everybody going out to find him. Bring him to me. You know, you want that moment where you know you're driving the bad guy absolutely fucking crazy. And on top of that, for them to kind of like sort of execute out this most extreme measure of searching where you know that the main players, the main characters, the heroes are in, in danger, but they don't know. So there's that extra sort of buildup. You know, I want it. I want IOI representatives at every airport. You're like, oh, fuck. You know, Papa's pissed. Papa's pissed. <laughs> Not only Papa pissed, but but now our heroes are immediately in danger. And maybe there's like this brush crossing where Artemis just barely misses an interaction where she gets with the limo driver and he puts the sign away and just as she starts walking off IOI troops start coming into the airport from the opposite direction heading towards one of the gates you know just that sort of brushed opportunity that's what I liked about the movie because the movie actually had the ability to bounce between perspectives yeah I hear you um, you. oh it doesn't sound like you're nearly as excited about that well we (laughs) talked about this before oh I'm sorry my bad but but yeah anyhow I mean yeah, we we could long for hearing the other perspectives, but that's what fanfics are for. Yeah, or that's what the next book is yeah. for. But who knows? One thing that I did realize, we had forgotten that the gun does come back into play. The gun that Parzival picks up from the vending machine, he falls asleep clutching the gun. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. You know what? I, I think I totally jumped over yeah, that. Yeah, but this. I didn't even think about it. This is the last time we hear about the gun. Right, 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 right. Presumably at this point, it's going ahead a little bit, but he'll probably just end up leaving it in H's RV. I don't know. You know, maybe maybe he should be packing just in case uh, IOI plans an infiltration of Fort Og. (laughs) Fort Og. (laughs) Fort Og. 
So anyway, we now get to this pivotal moment in the book, the meeting mm -hmm. of H and Parzival. Right. I, I loved this. I really loved this part of the book. So Parzival unsticks himself from the chair at the plug and gets the hell out of there, sees the RV and enters. And, he, and here we get to that pivotal moment, which was one of my biggest beefs about the movie was that like here, this is this seminal moment but the movie it was just blah they shifted the moment around and they made it incidental they made it momentary but that said it's probably one of those moments where you had a sort of sincere conversation a moment of of communication between the two main female characters in the movie but i really loved how they focused in on this point in the book this really kind of like the, the inner dialogue of Wade is where he's going through all these different emotions. I think that was very appropriate. And the discovery of the fact that what his idea of what H was really like, especially since throughout the whole book, he's just been picturing people basically being personifications of their avatar. This is the first time he's that hasn't been the case. This has probably been one of the best descriptions of a character that was just just focusing in on the character, right? Like we get a little bit of Wade. We get Wade's impression of Artemis's character like that. This is probably second to the longest description, which was, you know, him talking about Artemis's Rubenesque figure and his base momentary lusting after her. But, you know, the description here of a heavy set. African-American girl that sat in an RV's driver's seat, clutching the wheel tightly and staring straight ahead. So right off the bat, you know that she's bracing for the impact of the impression. You can totally imagine you're about to meet somebody that you were nervous about what their impression of you was in that same situation. You'd be doing the exact same thing. You'd be white knuckling that shit. Uh, yeah, you, I wouldn't. I'm not sure that I would want to turn and look at their face while getting this first impression, like, I don't know that I would want the impact of knowing what was going through their mind in that first moment. And I could I could see this. This is this sort of it almost like bracing for impact, like a wave coming yeah. to hit you. You just kind of shoulder into it. You can it. imagine taking like a lot of deep breaths and just being really nervous and a little bit shaky and just scared, frightened, anxious, excited, just, all yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. He goes on to describe that, that she being about his age with short kinky hair and chocolate colored skin that appeared iridescent in the soft glow of the dashboard indicators, wearing a vintage Rush 2112 concert t-shirt and the numbers that were warped around her large bosom. She also had on faded black jeans and a pair of studded combat boots. She appeared to be shivering, even though it was nice and warm in the cab. This is a really rich description. Yeah, absolutely. This is this really paints this person well. Yeah, and the vision that I had of this character was not the casting in the movie. It was it was not Lena Waithe? No, but I think Lena Waithe did a really oh, good I job. I mean, she was fine, but it, you know, like, again, I'm one of those people, like like many others, where the book is the book is the source. Right, I understand. I mean, Lena Waithe has a Cheshire grin. Yeah. But she was not the heavy set African American girl that I pictured. Okay, well that's fine. I mean, granted, well, yeah. Given the industry that we're in, it's it's hard to find. There's such a an expectation put on the slenderness of actors or the muscularness of actors that I'd imagine it would be difficult to find. Yeah, but there's an actor for every kind of 
characteristic out there. Fair enough. Fair enough. I don't know. To me, like losing the 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 fact that she's heavy set. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- that to me is one of the things that can define a character and all of their personality traits. If that word had been taken out of the description, then maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the Cheshire grins will got it for me when I saw her in her different the different roles that she's been in before and variety of pictures that she's posed for. She has that Cheshire grin. Yeah. I've seen her in a few things. Mostly I've seen her in Master of None. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's great. She's hilarious. She's awesome. And she's actually a really good writer, too, because she wrote an award-winning episode for Master of None. Well, that's, that's actually something I did not know, but that's uh, nifty. So the Cheshire grin did it for me. Uh, but again, we're in that place in the book where this is the bomb drop. Yeah. Where Parzival is expecting this bombshell to drop from Artemis and gets totally blindsided. Well, not totally, but blindsided enough. By H. I don't know that there was any preparation that H was going to, you know, give him. (laughs) No, because it's kind of like sometimes you just want to see someone's genuine reaction right away without giving them the hints ahead of time. Right. But the, the moment of tension breaks when he runs through his, like you said, his sort of flood of emotions and recognizes that this person before him is H. You know, that there are elements that he has seen within the avatar that he relates to, that this is not a different person. This is the same person. It's not exactly in the same package, but that person's spirit shines through their avatar. The Cheshire grin, the voice, the, the, the vocal characterisms, right? That that comes through, that comforts them, that you realize that this isn't per somebody who's trying to deceive you. This is a person that is your friend. The point of having an avatar is to be whom you need to be in the Oasis. And I I find it interesting that in the Oasis, it's acceptable to be anything you want. If H was a dragon, if H was an orc, this would not be surprising that they would look nothing like this in real life. So why, if looking like a regular person in the Oasis, would you ever expect it to look anything like their real life person? I mean, really, up until now, most of the people that that we've actually talked about what they might look like in real life. Either Parsville has just accepted that that person has to be pretty darn close to what their avatar looks like or has been proven to be very similar to their avatar. In the case of Artemis, he has her real picture. She's exactly the same except for the birthmark. So this is a case where the person is kind of like their avatar, but also quite different. And that's kind of the first time in the book that's happened. Yeah, that's true. Where it's been blatantly different, but that the expectations were set up differently. Very early on in the podcast, it was the whole discussion about, I think it was his history teacher, Mr. Avinovich, and whether or not he could actually be an Inuit woman from Alaska, but chose that look because of being able to get more respect from the students. Right, right, right. Yeah, I I think it's interesting. It's it's interesting that that the oasis is a place where you can choose an identity that fits more who you are or, or what you identify with, and that that is accepted from you know day one in the oasis. And the flip of that is that as we get into H's story as to why her avatar looks the way it does, why she identifies as a white male in the oasis is tragic. It sucks. And a lot of people, I think, can relate to that struggle. I think it's interesting that in that period of time that it's being portrayed, 
that in the real world, it's still an issue. I mean, we know it's an issue today for sure. And I think it's becoming better the more we talk about it, the more we identify the fact that people are struggling and struggling in a way that we can't see. Yeah. Then to imagine that 25 years from now, it apparently hasn't changed. I would imagine it would be worse. Yeah. In a dystopian environment. You know, in a society where there are a lot of poor people or a lot of people that are in poverty that are just, you know, born into a bad situation and there is the need to survive, you're going to do what it takes to survive. And you're going to do, you know, crazy shit. I mean, when we talk about the ability for females in the Chinese culture, in China specifically, who had to go through foot bindings Ugh. to make their feet smaller. Oh, God. Oh, God. Ugh. The x-rays of foot Ugh. women who had their feet slowly crushed down to a point where their heels were meeting their toes because they believed that in doing so, their child had an advantage of marrying into wealth that couldn't have been provided by the girl's parents. And it's no different here, I don't think. I think it's a situation where, you know, the mom said, you got to be a white male. And I'm sorry, but that's just what you got to be in order to survive on the oasis, to be allowed to be in school, in order to have what very few advantages there might be in a post-apocalyptic world. And it sucks that that would have to happen. Sucks even more to have your parents, the people who've trained you, who you've looked up to, have been your model to disown you for being who you are. Oh, we have kind of a luxury right now where we don't have to do that so much anymore. There's more awareness of the struggle for people who really, you know, have to deal with this, the same kind of situation. And it is still a struggle, but that there is an awareness helps. But to be in a place where that struggle, is a survival skill where you have to do that in order to eat and have a roof over your head when you sleep and to get a job, that sucks. Yeah. And it exists in a lot of other places. But I, I thought it was cool that Ernest Klein kind of worked it into the book in this particular way and has kind of dropped this bomb on Parzival and that for a moment put us in, in his shoes to experience H in this wholly different form, and yet it still be H. Yeah. And it's just, it was just kind of nice. Like, he didn't have to do this, but it's a great bombshell to have dropped. It was kind of a, it was kind of a nice place where you go, oh, shit, how, how's the writer going to handle this? How is, because we've had Wade saying, oh, oh, well, you know, it's the personality online that I really like. And to have H actually fighting this, like, dude, you don't know. This could be somebody totally different, really pushing the point. Because H was totally different yeah. and afraid that Wade would be disappointed by Artemis, but also that maybe Wade would be disappointed by H. Reading this book for the first time, you might not have thought about that that was a possibility of being disappointed by who H really is. It isn't really until it's like, you might be a little shocked by seeing me. And then, yeah. But, and then you get that sense of, you get that view into Parzival's character where it's like, wow, he, like you just said, the real person behind the avatar doesn't matter who or what they are. That person is still my friend. Yeah. No, no. You're absolutely right. I like the fact that it worked into this sort of release where there's a realization that the disappointment doesn't exist, that this betrayal and this anger that was initially triggered because of how different H was, was just evaporated because H was truly in this scene portrayed, written as being incredibly nervous and incredibly afraid of losing a friend. 
but that that evaporated and they instantly fell back into the pattern that they had in the Oasis. And that's one of those moments that ah, just would have been so great to see that portrayed in the movie. I missed this. Yeah, I, I, I liked that, that they kept it and maybe partially that, that they portrayed it with Artie and H, but it didn't have as much impact. It, it was secondary at best, tertiary, perhaps at worst. Yeah. Whereas in the book, it's primary. Yeah, my guess is that they couldn't kind of weave the storyline to make that a more poignant introduction other than meeting in the alleyway and, oh, oh, oh sh you know, well, we have similar terms. Okay, follow me. And to be fair, in the movie, they were pretty much running for their lives, whereas in the book, they are trying to retreat to safety within relative safety. I will absolutely agree that this point in the book I thought was really pivotal for the characters particularly how Parzival handled somebody in real life versus their avatar. Whereas in the movie, it really did not. Yeah. It, didn't, it didn't hit home nearly as hard. It was more focused on the love story, less focused on what really should have been like the dropping of a bomb on Parzival. It is interesting how Parzival goes into all the things that he revealed and discussed with H, not knowing that it was a woman. That was that moment where he had that sense of betrayal, like, oh, my God, you know, I revealed things to you thinking that you were another dude like me. Right. And H actually was agreeing with a lot of what he was saying. And he did say, well, at least at least he slash she wasn't lying to me about that. Right. Well, yeah, I, I think this would have been it would have been more awkward if it was a situation where H wasn't lesbian. Oh, yeah, that would have been bizarre. <laughs> I mean, think about this. Let's just imagine for a moment. H isn't lesbian, but her mom forces her on the avatar to identify as a white male for reasons of getting treated differently, potentially having some sort of advantage. But for H to then harbor potentially a crush for Parzival, which would then explain why this, you know, incredibly awesome ga gamer has any interest in all in befriending this total nobody who's like a level five, right, or less. You see what I'm getting at? And then for him to fall in love with someone else and be going back to H to say, hey, I, I you know, really have a shine for this girl over here. And for H to then be torn by this this concept of, well, you know, what about me? But you see me as a guy that that could be that H is is interested in gals as well. Kind of lessens, I think, the shock here. But could you imagine a slightly different story where, where H has kind of sort of harbored these feelings for him that have gone unnoticed? Oh, wow. Yeah. Because of this persona that she's been forced into and just gone along with all this like, time. Like what if H was pulling a Parzival on Parzival? Yeah. Ooh, the plot thickens. Obviously, obviously not the case here. Totally friend zoned. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I mean that you could see how that that could get even like super weird. That's kind of like ducky weird, right? Yeah, I was just gonna say that's so ducky. It's very pretty in pink. Yeah, isn't it though? Like it's pretty. It, only if only if Ducky was forced to be a girl, <laughs> right? But was really interested in Molly Ringwald. Yeah, yeah. So what if Ducky was forced to forced to dress like a girl? Had a huge crush on Molly Ringwald. Molly Ringwald doesn't know. Totally not aware. Not interested. And then she starts going after the guy that she's going after. 
you know, it, you see how that story could change up a bit, right? Interesting thought, Chris, but I'm going to have to stop you there. The get to the good part guys have lots more to say about this chapter. So keep an eye on your podcast feeds for part two coming soon. This is an avatar. People know what Og looks like. Somebody could have made an avatar of Og. Who's to say this is an iOS? iOS? You know, you. I said iOS. <laughs> I mean, IOI. No, we're talking about the other big corporate. Corporate, right. Um, 